we're here on the Interesting and Unknown podcast. I'm Jake, your host, and I'm here with Jim Fleming. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Jim? Uh, sure. I work at Colby College. I teach history of science and technology in a program called Science, Technology, and Society. And it brings together the two cultures and builds uh, commuting bridges between the two where we discuss both the uh, technical and the social. And that's what you mean by the two cultures, the technology? C.P. Snow wrote a famous book back in 1959 talking about the humanities or literary professions and the scientific. And he claimed there was a big gulf of misunderstanding between the two. We feel that that gulf is uh, it's still there in a, in a big way, but RSTS, or Science, Technology, and Society program, uh, provides a real uh, pathway between the two cultures and in some ways melds the two cultures. Yeah, and can you talk about how uh, that perspective has kind of shaped the sorts of issues that you've looked at in your mm-hmm. career and your research? Well, I think uh, I've been um, involved in both professionally. I <clears throat> took my first degree in astronomy and moved directly from undergrad to grad school in atmospheric science. Where did you attend school? Just for I was at Penn State for astronomy and I was at Colorado State for atmospheric science. Okay. And that was, uh, they, were, they were both uh, ex- exceptionally good programs. The Colorado State was a leader in tropical meteorology. Yeah. And so I got involved in putting cirrus clouds in a tropical climate and using early computing technologies. Hmm. And uh, upon graduation, got a job flying in a couple research projects. Uh, I flew with the NCAR glider up into cumulus clouds and... Uh, tried to take samples in them. I spent almost all day circling in a glider and uh, was able to gather good data as, as, as far as we know. But one night in the uh, Leadville, Colorado um, hotel room, the police came to our door and said, you better come down with us. So we thought we were going down to the station to get booked, but we, we actually went to the um, hangar where some locals had thrown a Molotov cocktail through the window and burned up our glider. And so my, one of my saddest memories was loading the glider on a flatbed truck to go back to Boulder and canceling the program in the mid, middle of the project. Um, they thought we were stealing uh, sky water. They thought we were cloud seeding or taking out the rain that the farmers needed downwind. And uh, really? we were doing anything but that. We were doing uh, non-obtrusive cloud studies in things that were soon to become thunderstorms. We'd, we'd try to get out of there before they... Oh, yeah, collected. yeah. <laughs> when I was collecting stuff, I would be uh, whited out for hours at a time trying to navigate the glider. So you're up there within, with the, cl- oxygen, within the cloud. In the cloud, whited out with oxygen, and I had uh, sampling uh, technologies. I had a strobe camera to take photographs. And are you alone in the... Oh, plane? we had a f- fantastic pilot. His name was Vin Tutenhoff. And uh, he was a Dutch. That sounds uh, wild. A Dutch aviator who could solo across the Rockies, and I felt completely safe with him. And but we did uh, do a lot of circling. <laughs> but some people, you said you you were doing it unobtrusively, but some people have not been so unobtrusive when it comes to the weather. And I know you've. It was the era in which it was the era in which there was a, a group. There there were commercial groups cloud seeding for the farmers under contract. And the government was still looking into the possibility of enhancing rainfall using chemical seeding agents like sulfur iodide and dry ice. And uh, 
And they thought, they thought that's what we were doing, and we weren't doing anything but that. And then another project, then I went out to University of Washington, Seattle, where we flew in winter storms coming in off the Pacific. And we wanted to see uh, the results of uh, the ongoing seeding the government was doing. We were, in, we were in charge of tracing their seeding particles, not putting out seeding particles. Mm -hmm. So we were in an old World War II bomber, um, a B-27 uh, surplus. And it was really crickety and really old and uh, a really good pilot too, but we would fly out of the regional airport north of Seattle. And uh, one night after flying for a very long time, we came back down in a very turbulent uh, end of the storm. And uh, I looked out the left and the right windows and I, I basically said over the intercom, brace for impact, because the trees were coming right against the windows. And we cut off a, about a, uh, oh, about a two inch, branch of the top of a pine tree. We sampled a pine tree out of it. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it cracked uh, another meter lower, we would have probably flipped the plane over. But we did damage the instruments, I was in charge of them, so I pulled out a big pine branch. And I remember looking at it thinking, gee, uh, this is not a long-term <laughs> job for me. Yeah, I need to find some other way to study the atmosphere. So from, from that point, I went into um, the history of science and studied the history of atmospheric science mainly, history of meteorology, climate issues, climate change, and uh, most recently what I call climate intervention, or the, the kind of things that the, the, the yahoos thought we were doing back in Colorado. <laughs> Can you give us some examples of climate intervention, kind of what that... Well, it, it, has, it has what I call a long and checkered history. Yeah. It dates to, in actual practice, it it's been a perennial uh, power of the gods to control the weather and control the world. Uh, but it dates in history to the 1830s in the U.S. where our first national meteorologist, James Espy, uh, a theorist of convection that, that warm air rises and rising air cools and cooling air condenses and drops its moisture. And he thought, wow, I could just make it rise faster if I built big fires and put out a lot of smoke and so he had a plan to basically torch, <laughs> torch the crest of the Appalachian Mountains from, say, Maine to Georgia every Sunday afternoon. He wanted to burn big woodlots full of, full of fuel and make smoke and heat that would enhance the rising air, that would cause precipitation downstream, which would, in that case, would be cities like New York, Philadelphia, Washington. And so the settled East Coast would be the beneficiary of his... Um, large-scale weather control activities. Wow. And in 1841, uh, we have a copy in the Colby Library. Uh, he wrote a book called Philosophy of Storms, which uh, talks about, one chapter talks about making an artificial volcano. This would be very early thinking about what we've called later, we called pollution the human volcano later in the 70s. And, and the geoengineers today talk about the Pinatubo volcano as being something that helped cool off the climate. But he wanted to make rain, and he wanted to make the air fresher and purer because of regular um, rain events would break up heat waves, they would, could break up cold snaps, they could uh, water the rivers. He had, had all kind of health benefits from having rain every every Sunday afternoon after people got home from church, yeah. it, would, it would rain. So everyone would go out and light a big bonfire on the top of the mountain. He had he was he never did it actually, but he had some test firings. Yeah, and he had people ready to to 
harvest wood lots and uh you'd kind of want to wait till later sunday afternoon after people had their picnics oh uh, yeah and then they would torch it and it would start to rain sunday night and it'd be all ready for business monday morning so is there evidence that that would have worked or it was considered uh at the time in in their own terms it was barking mad it was yeah okay he was considered to be a really strong theorist of convection yeah. A real scientist. Took the ideas a little too who far. Who went maybe. off the deep end. Yeah, yeah. And I see that pattern. That, that, that was the first pattern. And I see that pattern of relatively strong scientists who get an idea fixated. Yeah. And they want to follow through on it. But the idea is not uh, fully baked. Half-baked. <laughs> Sometimes it's kind of raw. <laughs> but they, they, they want to take um, a basic scientific idea and... and operationalize it or make it a global solution to a big problem yeah yeah so you, you understand the nature and then once you have that understanding you feel the need to change yeah, it and yeah. harness that power it's and like, you go from the very small so you understand smoke particles we have right there we have a device that sp the kind of device he used to use to make clouds in a lecture and he realized that if he if he put uh uh, moisture in the bottom of the container and pumped it down and released the pressure quickly, it would make a cloud. Yeah. But it wouldn't make a cloud the second time he tried it. So he couldn't give an encore performance until he took his pipe and puffed some smoke down into the container. Hmm. And then there would be enough particles to form an, a new cloud. Yeah. So he was, this is in the 1830s. So he was very close, you would say, to anticipating the sort of cloud condensation nuclei that came around in the 1890s. But he knew that they needed something else besides moisture. Yeah. On that, I recently I was listening to a different podcast where they talked about how snow often forms around bacteria. Exactly. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's actually one of my interests is to go from the very small to the very large, from from SP's smoke particles and heat to the control of the East Coast weather, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or to go from, uh, uh, you know, you might call it in, in sort of Richard Dawkins terms, you might call it the selfish clouds. They're full of bacteria and DNA that wants, they want to pre precipitate in the next valley, you know. They yeah. want to move their uh, life uh, essences around the planet. Yeah. So, so uh, how, how does the, the bacterial cloud form? Well, we know that... Uh, Every cloud doesn't just have a silver lining, it sort of has a dirt lining. It has uh, sea salt or um, some sort of uh, atmospheric pollution particles. In a natural sense, it, it might have terpenes that come out of a pine forest. And, and, and now, atmospheric scientists are not experts yet on this, but they're realizing that certain kinds of life, uh, bacteria, viruses, small particles, are also in the clouds. And there's this active biological agent that's giving you a new view of sort of... There's chemical... Atmospheric chemistry is a latecomer to the whole science. But atmospheric biochemistry is a brand new yeah. option. And it's very exciting to... I was talking with a, a colleague who teaches this at my old uh, university, Colorado State. And she agreed that uh, if we could send her uh, biochemistry majors who were interested in atmospheric science as well... Yeah. That would be a, a sort of a pioneering field. <clears throat> there's there's a few papers on it, but it, yeah. it's not clear what's really going on yet, except that there are there's life forms in the clouds. There's life forms in outer space. There's life forms in wow. the clouds. There's there's a lot of new activity in that field. That's really interesting. 
and unknown. <laughs> it is unknown. Yeah. And I think it's also important. Yeah. And then, um, so you've, you talked to us about this guy who was trying to control the weather through um, fires on the yeah, Appalachian SB. Mountains, SB. How did that idea get taken forward by the people that came after him? Right. Um, there's, a, there's a number of episodes. One, one of the interesting ones comes out of the Civil War, where people began to notice that after gigantic battles, where the cannon were roaring and the smoke was forming and, the, and maybe the blood was draining into the ground, that, that somehow there were always these rains that came after the battles, and they were, they're known as the cleansing rains. There, there's references in antiquity to the rains that come after battles. And so, they, uh, not scientists so much, but uh, Civil War generals started to make a theory that, that rain follows the battle. And, and the troops coming out of uh, Gettysburg, they had to tromp, the, the southern troops had to tromp south in the mud. Hmm. There's a gigantic rainstorm after the Gettysburg three-day battle. And so there was this popular theory that the cannonading, uh, maybe the noise of battle, was causing the air currents to smash together. Uh, or, uh, and this came up in, in several different instances, but the basic theory was um, not very sound. It was, uh, the, the simple explanation w was that um, generals usually pick a nice weather pattern to fight in. <laughs> This is true. In World War One, they waited till the spring mud was over and they could fight, have a fighting season. Yeah. And other venues, they often have a, a fighting season, like in North Africa when it wasn't quite so hot. But in the Civil War, it was uh, about every seven days, the East Coast gets some kind of a rain event. And it just happened that periodically the battles would be between these events. So it's misattributed causality. Misattributed, right. Well, so that's probably been happening with the weather since antiquity of you know human sacrifices animal sacrifices to bring on the weather you know yeah and you see a pattern and you start to theorize about it yeah. and it becomes something bigger than what it is so and we're not so, so far we're not so far out of that yet no the, what, what i've been discovering as a historian is that there are a lot of perennial issues not just innovative new issues and that a lot of people fall into that uh, very small to very large kind of uh, magnification error or they fall into this, hey, I've got an, a mechanism, maybe it's universal, so that's what's happening. And I called some of those, uh, they're like one-trick ponies. They're, they're people that have a favorite steed and they keep riding it into the ground. Yeah. And they're not, uh, so climate, things like climate change are multi-causal, they're very diverse, there's lots of factors happening in, in the internal dynamics of the the planet and some external forcings, but people tend to pick one or one or one or another yeah. favorite issues. So coming out of the Civil War, uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, basically hired a an ex Civil War general to go out to Texas in August and to set off fireworks, uh, cannonade the clouds. Uh, the way it was described. Uh, he went out to set off a perfect imitation of battle. He wasn't killing anybody, but he was shooting dynamite and had, he had big balloons that were full of hydrogen and they would, uh, he'd set them off with a torch and they would blow up with the oxygen and make a tiny little bit of water, H2O, and that would fall into the clouds. And he was down there in Texas uh, during what's known as the monsoon season, which is August. So in, in August, naturally, air from the Gulf of Mexico, sometimes streaming in from the Gulf of California, 
they meet over Texas and it, it makes a rainy season. There's a lot of thunder clouds. When I was writing the chapter in my book that summer, I remember putting on the weather uh, on, the, on the net and there were all these storms over Texas. <laughs> so this, this fellow knew that. He waited until he thought there was a good chance of rain and then he went down there and made it rain using his cannons. And the, the local people loved it. They, they gathered, it was near Laredo, Texas, and nothing much was happening in the 1890s except drought. And so the good people of Laredo would climb up on the hillside, they'd watch the preparations, and then they'd watch all the fireworks, and they loved it. Because this fellow would claim that he made it rain, whether it was upwind or downwind, whether it was before or after. He just did this stuff and made a wild claim that he had watered the, the plains of Texas. Just a good excuse to blow some stuff up. He blew some stuff <laughs> up, and, and he got and he, he was collecting. Uh, and then, then, then the the commercialization of that, uh, and so the two, tro the two themes that I mainly looked at were the militarization of this technology. Uh, Espy was not trying to militarize it, but the military generals of the Civil War had um, military purposes. If they could make mud instead of uh, fair weather, they could have a tactical advantage. And then the commercialization followed, that people wanted to sell this technique to the farmers. It, it was very popular to have the rainmakers traveling through the 1880s and 90s out in the Great Plains, uh, putting on a show. And some of them would put on a show for the whole week of the fair. They would, they would mix proprietary chemicals and they would have a fence around their tent and they would make, do this mysterious stuff. They, one even had his own train line with a boxcar full of stuff and he would shoot off cannons and stuff and fireworks and and it was very entertaining and sometime during that week it would probably rain and they'd say see I I yeah now I can sell it to your farm so there's an early history of this which led me to identify uh, sincere but deluded scientists who were fixated on too much of a narrow issue or pure charlatans snake oil salesmen patent medicine salesmen, rainmakers. Yeah. And and they were people who they kinda knew they they didn't kinda know, they knew that they were fooling others and making some proprietary claims for for their ingredients and elixirs that would cause the clouds to converge. Well it's understandable why that idea is so captivating of controlling the weather, you know, it's like goes back to the Greek myth of Persephone. Yeah. You know, the control of the weather being so powerful or and you know and sticking with the Greeks you know, the weather stopped the Persians from conquering the yeah. Greek Empire yeah. probably so it's a fundamental variable and if you can control it you're a god or if you claim you control it you might be a charlatan yeah or if you really are deluded you'll be that uh, pathologically deluded scientist that that, that the trend uh, continues into the 20th century yeah, maybe twenty twenty uh, first now too. And they were using this technology in Vietnam as as late as Vietnam. I have that uh, section in my book too, called yeah. "Fixing the Sky: The Operation Popeye Over Vietnam," which was a rain making attempt to uh, slow down the uh, trafficability of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And they were using similar techniques. They were, the no, they uh, the, uh, there, there's a couple missing uh, points here, but. The one thing that was true is that they always tried to use the latest technologies that they had access to. So when they had uh, signaling balloons and they had uh, cannon, they used that. Uh, in the early 20th century, they tried airplanes that would fly into the clouds 
and they had a, a theory that electrified sand sprinkled in the clouds would cause the ions to merge or just dissipate and make rain or clear the air. Usually the technology can work either way. It can either make rain or clear the sky. If you put too much silver iodide in a cloud, you could break up the cloud. If you put just enough in, it might it might rain, but not cause an effect. And same thing with electrified sand. So they would they would have sort of a unfalsifiable bulletproof demonstration. They'd say, see, I, I made that cloud disappear. Yeah. <clears throat> I was they would be able to cover um, the result of their experiment. So <clears throat> the the big breakthrough in cloud physics was was done in 1946 when uh, the scientists at General Electric Corporation um, identified dry ice as an agent. Uh, this is solid carbon dioxide that has a very low temperature and it could lead to the formation of ice crystals in the cloud. Uh, ice has a lower saturation vapor pressure than water, so the water migrates onto the ice. And so you can make snow in a, in a home freezer. You can, you can take a fog and make it precipitate snow crystals if you put dry ice in it. And this is exactly what Vincent Schaefer did in 1946 while he was trying to experiment on, uh, really they were trying to experiment on aircraft icing and, uh, and they were making f clouds and then trying to make the clouds precipitate. Uh, his co colleague was Bernie Vonnegut, which was Kurt's brother. Kurt Vonnegut's brother worked at GE. Really? Kurt worked at GE. Uh, he was a science writer for the corporation. Yeah. And so that was, must have given him some information from some of his books. He's well, the, uh, Cat's Cradle Cat's was Cradle, based yeah, on Ice uh, Nine and... Dr. Felix Honegger. Yeah. Is, uh, is like a Dr. Strangelove type. It's kind of based on Irving Langmuir, who was their Nobel Prize uh, winning supervisor. So there was this triumvirate of uh, Bernie Vonnegut, Vince Schaefer, and uh, Irving Langmuir, the Nobel laureate, uh, who decided that they could control clouds. So they were using a, uh, Bernie's uh, chemical with silver iodide. And AGI silver iodide has a hexagonal molecular structure, which uh, tricks, you could say, tricks the cloud into thinking there's ice in it because snowflakes are hexagonal, the, the, the molecules of water start to f form around the, the dry ice, or the silver iodide. And so suddenly you can get a cloud thinking it's glaciated and then acting like it's glaciated, and yeah. then the, the cloud water migrates onto the, uh, at the right temperature, uh, migrates onto the uh, crystals. Hmm. So, but, uh, so they tried this. They, they tried to control hurricanes uh, they tried to control uh, winter clouds over snow, over ski areas. And the GE lawyers quickly decided that this was too much uh, exposure for their corporation. And so they shut down the whole thing. They said, you can't do this as a corporate scientist. Because then you get in trouble for every uh, yeah. flood that happens. Every, every, every yeah. uh, errant hurricane then becomes a litigious path to yeah. valuable real estate. And, and somebody will sue you. So... Um, the first paper I ever gave on this topic was called The Limits of Corporate uh, Experimentation, GE and the Cloud Seeding. It was in the 40s. Uh, the events were in the 40s. Huh. And so I had a really good time writing about that and thinking about it. That technology of dry ice and silver, especially the silver iodide flares found its way into hurricane studies off the coast of uh, Florida in Project Storm Fury of the 60s. And it found its way into Vietnam as an attempt to make that rain over the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Hmm. That uh, 
nobody knew about uh, the talk about unknown. Yeah, you like that category. Yeah, I like nobody that knew the the base commander in uh, in uh, Thailand didn't know that they were cloud seeding. They they were told take these canisters, fire them off over the trail, and return to base. Take some observations of the clouds. They weren't scientific observations, but they claimed we had reduced the influx of of, of uh, North Vietnamese North Vietnamese material and troops down the trail. They, they didn't because it was money because we made it rain. So yeah, but the more. only two people that knew about it were the president and the secretary of defense. They didn't tell this uh, group of the Air Force called the Air Weather Service. They didn't tell them they were doing this. And so they preserved deniability. They they preserved the ability to say we don't know what happened. For the same reason as GE, I would imagine you can't have you know yeah, so liability it, for the errant storms. Yeah, it quickly turns into a social issue. Uh, one of the scenarios of the fifties was to use this new technology to turn back a an imagined Eastern European invasion, perhaps driven by Soviet tanks across the, the plains, the steppes. And uh, the idea was that weather goes from west to east, so it, it would go from, say, the Western European countries toward the Eastern European countries. So it's like a one-way weapon. If you can get the clouds going that way and becoming yeah. thunderstorms, you could possibly do something that couldn't be uh, verified. You know, that reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, uh, Japan had a program in uh, World War Two where they were using um, air currents to send giant, weather balloons with uh, chandeliers that had explosives on them and they would uh, they were attached to an altimeter so Mm -hmm. once the balloon got blown from Japan all the way to America and the balloon started losing altitude they would um, start dropping their bombs and I think uh, it resulted in the death of a number of American children uh, Boy Scouts, maybe that that recovered one of these. Or I think some came balloons. down over the West Coast, maybe yeah. it was Washington State or Northern California. Yeah. It was the same idea of like a one-way <laughs> weather weapon. Yeah, they, they were. They were. Uh, this was uh, 1954, and President Eisenhower had a weather advisor who was trying to weaponize this. I even have documents showing uh, that jets were supposed to be equipped with. Uh, dry ice uh, tracers in their machine guns that they're supposed to be able to strafe a cloud as they fly by and precisely give it the right dose so it goes downstream and makes a thunderstorm over the enemy tanks. And so they were trying to make it a precision weapon. It's really, really crazy. So this was a diluted, uh, both scientific and military kind of uh, fantasy. How has it played out now in the, the contemporary period? Well... I can tell you a story about, we were at a great big policy meeting about climate engineering, and uh, I mentioned this kind of thing, that the military had done this stuff, and the generals had claimed that if you control the weather, you'll control the world. It was it's like our quote in class the other day, you control the AI, you'll control the world. Yeah. This was the clouds. And, and so I, I gave this storyline pretty much in the conference, and one big uh, science policy fellow from a major university says, oh, well, and the U.S. military is not doing that now. And I just turned to him. I said, how do you know? <laughs> and he, he said, you know, I said, I, then, then I said, how high is your security clearance? Yeah. Because I told the story about uh, uh, w- one story was uh, Johnson and his defense, uh, 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 his defense um, 
or whatever it's called. So uh, one version was Johnson and his Secretary of Defense, and the other was Nixon and his Secretary of Defense. And yeah. those were the two administrations that had done this in Vietnam. And you know, he said, my clearance isn't high enough. <laughs> yeah. So I take it back. I don't know what the military is doing right now. So it could still be going on. But that, that feeds, that opens the door a little bit for these conspiracy people who talk about, uh, you know, cloud, uh, chemtrails. Chem yeah. And I don't have any archival evidence or nothing on chemtrails. I, I write only about the things that actually happened. Yeah. And I imagine that there are things uh, happening that could still be happening, but I don't have proof of that. I did. I went to a great big geographers meeting, and the big uh, ballroom scheduled for a, a, one of the Pentagon people talking about weather uh, and uh, the military. That was absolutely packed. I couldn't get into the ballroom. I had to stand in the doorway and watch. The people are absolutely fascinated to try to find out something about this. Yeah. But um, we won't have any archival access to it. No, they're going to keep that under lock and key. So as a professional historian, I follow the the trail. I follow yeah. people that can tell me about it or the documents that are already cleared. Yeah. And uh, that's the best I can do to show the pattern. And But uh, is weaponized weather something that's still allowed? Uh, oh, right. International uh, regulation? Very soon after the Vietnam episode, it was brought to light by uh, Senator Claiborne Pell that this was going on in Vietnam. And it was a, as a version of environmental warfare. There was Agent Orange, there was the Rome Plow, they were bombing the, the rice paddies, uh, uh, interrupting the dike system of Vietnam. And so weather warfare was just one of those things. And it was brought to the Senate and highly publicized. And, uh, and then it went, uh, the Russians jumped on it, the Soviets jumped on the bandwagon because Gerald Ford was leaving the presidency. He was a caretaker president uh, after Richard Nixon resigned. And they took it to the UN and they passed this environmental treaty called NMOD, the, the prohibition of uh, large-scale sustained environmental warfare. Hmm. And so cloud seeding fits under NMOD and maybe uh, it has the power to convene a security uh, council meeting if it, if it was uh, determined that one country was doing war surreptitiously against another by controlling their weather. Now, we, we take a close look at that. We're, we're working on trying to find out if NMOD is, has sufficient teeth to handle uh, climate engineering, whether uh, a country wants to change the whole weather statistics of their region, yeah. and whether that would be considered to be hostile to a downwind country. And it's, it's not clear yet, but we're, there's people that do think that that treaty should be Revisited, uh, possibly. It's already had two meetings of the party since 1977. Expanded to cover... Possibly the language no. cleared up to yeah. say, or uh, rogue uh, climate engineering. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe let's talk about that a little bit. So we've talked about the military hubris around uh, utilizing the weather uh, for military purposes. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, with climate change, uh, there's this whole movement of people that are trying to uh, use technology to solve this problem that we're creating for ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and does that have similar elements of hubris? Well, it was so, it was so similar that uh, I had written a number of papers about weather control before 2006. And in 2006, the floodgates opened up on new discussions about climate control. 
Uh, it was stimulated by Nobel laureate Paul Kurtzen's essay about climate engineering. He put it in a pub, Climatic Change, a pretty popular climate journal. And uh, suddenly there's all these meetings. And, uh, and I said to myself, well, weather and climate are on the same spectrum. One is short term, one is long term. If you intervened in all the storms, you would end up changing the climate statistics of a region. If you moved all the hurricanes offshore, you would change the water budget of Georgia or something like that. Yeah. And if you intervened in the Earth's radiation budget, you would end up changing the storm tracks and how the different large-scale circulations set up. Hmm. So if you change the weather, you change the climate. If you change the climate, you change the weather. Yeah. And so they're on the same spectrum. And I had done all these essays on weather control, historical essays, and I said, wow, I can just pick this low-hanging fruit. <laughs> it's like... Um, Really, readily available theme, themes I had already developed. Yeah. So there's, there's, there, there were certainly there were charlatans in the meetings I was in. Certainly there were sincere but deluded scientists. Uh, certainly there were militarists. There were uh, staunch conservatives who wanted to burn their fossil fuels and have a cool climate too. Yeah. Through a technological fix. So the main theme came out as uh, quick techno fixes for long term. Uh, environmental problems. So you're setting up this dichotomy between the weather, which is the short term, uh, and the climate, which is long term. And we've talked about uh, the ways that which people have tried to intervene in the weather with cloud seeding, cannons, human sacrifice, that sort of thing. What kinds of technological uh, inventions are people deploying to try to alter the climate? You might laugh on this one, but it's cannons. Cannons, oh God. <laughs> Hulk. The 2006 editorial projected that if we did uh, suddenly clean up our atmosphere, smoke and particles in the lower atmosphere, yeah. the CO2 signal would be very strong and magnified because the sulfates uh, and, the, and the air pollution were offsetting some of the warming. So he proposed... Can you explain the science behind that yeah, for those there, who don't know? Yeah, there's... Uh, it's not very well known, which is one of your categories, oh, you is the, the presence of industrial uh, smoke, soot, uh, particulates, especially the sulfur family, uh, when it gets uh, moist and makes a kind of a sulfuric acid kind of cloud, it makes the particles much brighter. It reflects more sunlight back to space. Yeah. So you can see this in ships' trails over the Pacific. When a ship goes under a marine stratus cloud, you can see the the trail of the of the smokestack hmm. as a bright spot on the clouds, and there's this marine cloud brightening theory. It's not just a theory, but actually, you get when you get the double uh, multiple reflections from the sulfate clouds, you get a, a brighter, um, a, a larger amount of of uh, reflected short waves. So these space. the industrial uh, projects are not only increasing the CO two which increases temperature but it's also putting these larger particles which decrease temperature at the same time yeah just different particles yeah and they, they can become uh, hydroscopic particles and they can make it brighter yeah so the the, the idea was that the, the climate warming was being hidden a bit by this industrial smoke and haze yeah and that's one of the explanations why the the anthropogenic greenhouse effect was not as big as so if you go and clean out all of these uh all of these larger elements then the the temperature is going to increase even further than than 
Yeah, he, he was saying that the Clean Air Act could be really bad for the climate. Yeah. If okay. you suddenly cleaned up the atmosphere. Yeah. So he and wants then, then cannons? <laughs> then you, then, <laughs> you got to, from there to there. Yeah. Then you get back to, then he's proposed, like Mount Pinatuba of 1993, which blew a lot of sulfates up into the high atmosphere and cooled the climate. The earth cooled for about two years for about a degree or two. I was down in Boston that time, and it was a cold, cold winter. We had the megastorm of 93 that winter. We had a cool summer. I, I was worried coming from Maine down there. I thought it was going to be too hot, but it was just volcano weather. Hmm. And uh, he said, let's take naval cannons into the tropics, open fire on the stratosphere, shooting sulfate shells up there, and make an artificial haze in the stratosphere, which is dry and it circulates globally, and we'll make a, quote, artificial volcano. So that echoes Espy's 1841 thing about volcanoes yeah. and his big fires. These guys want to use basically World War II-era battleship cannons, naval guns, to open fire on the stratosphere, which is a very militaristic metaphor if you... What do you do if you have an environmental problem? You shoot at it. Yeah. <laughs> you shoot at it, and and with and it was no. It was a short essay, but there was no evidence that he was going to ask the tropical countries if they could do that. They were just going to take the U.S. Navy into the tropics and cool the planet by emulating Pinatuba, the Philippine volcano. Yeah. So this became a meme. This became a theme. This became a a mania. Uh, let's cool off very cheaply. They would say. Let's use uh, shortwave offset for longwave gains. Let's use the cannons and the sulfates to, to hide the this, this signal of the, of the warming. But the problem is you'd have to continue firing about, about once every few seconds. You'd have to have a real barrage that never stops, really. Because if you stop, uh, the, the warming signal comes right back, and it's even worse to have a rapid uh, temperature change like that. Oh, because those particles are leaving the atmosphere eventually? Yeah, eventually they yeah. would, and you'd have to continue to refresh them and renew them. So people have been trying to find ways that you could turn it off and turn it on, but our, we're having a guest here at Colby um, September 17th, who's the world expert on volcanoes and one of my really good friends. Yeah. And he writes about nuclear winter, he also writes about uh, climate engineering, and his latest result is that uh, if you turn off climate engineering that's been going on for a while, you'll have a sudden shock to the biosphere that plants and animals and, and the established ecosystems aren't going to be able to change that fast. Yeah. So he worked with an ecologist and showed that the world's ecosystems could take a real hit if you started this cheap, and they call it too cheap to, too cheap to really worry about... Uh, delivering sulfates. Some people thought you could put it in jet fuel, uh, just make the jets more polluting up in the high altitude. But what you're doing, and I, I pointed this out, I was I was invited to, to be in a congressional panel once and I talked about this and I said, you're taking your ignorance of the lower atmosphere and you're moving it into the upper atmosphere. Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? And what could go wrong is you could damage the tropical hydrologic cycle a uh, big volcano, Pinatuba, caused a drought in the uh, Nile River Valley. Yeah. Uh, it also caused ozone depletion by in interrupting the ozone formation cycle in the stratosphere. And the stratosphere is not self-cleaning. It, 
it's dry, it's uh, uh, not as dynamic at all. It yeah. doesn't have the more cl- permanent the cleansing rains of the troposphere. Yeah. So you end up possibly causing a worse problem than you started by having this technological fix approach. Yeah, that's a big a big theme in your work is the technological fixes to all of our problems. So yeah. and but people people propose them who have never taken a course in politics, in sociology, in history. They're, they're simply technical ideas to take that very small sulfate uh, molecules, atoms really, and turn them into a global solution. And, and, and also some of these people, not Chris, Christen's a very nice guy who just pitches out these wild ideas and lets other people follow up. But other people, some of them in Germany, want to be sort of the Jorel of the planet, the wise people who, they might have a world government, but these people would be advising the world government and telling them what the models show and what could be possible for the environment. And so there are people with true uh, demonstration of hubris who want to be the lords of the governors. And they think the panel of wise men, mostly, mostly men, mostly scientists, mostly these speculative people should run the planet. Hmm. That, that's sort of my, my, my allusion to Jor-El, who's Superman's dad. It didn't turn out too well for him because Krypton blew up anyway, but yeah. the, the idea is that there, there would be a council of elders yeah. from the big technical yeah. places, which I thought was really quite a dangerous idea. So what is the solution that you personally uh, would mm-hmm. like to see employed? Well, on the cover of my book, there's a, an engineer pulling a big lever and controlling a big thing. Yeah. Controlling the weather from a point. Say it's Lawrence Livermore Lab, or it wouldn't be somewhere else in the world. It would be NASA or somebody like that. And instead of a, a single solution to global warming, which is huge and, and uh, possibly done behind uh, locked chain-link fences in a national lab or something, I I really do, I don't propose it, but I think we're headed towards uh, lots more smart engineering, uh, better carburation, uh, electric vehicles, fuel switching. I like to call it uh, cleaner, quieter cities. Uh, lots of engineering, but not on the, on the individual, or not on the massive level, but in ways that, uh, that make, uh, make our world and our managed environment uh, um, cleaner and more manageable. That's great. I think that might be a good place for us to end. Uh, if you will, would like to say maybe the name of your recent book, so if people are interested in this sort of thing, they can uh, reach I'll just out. hold it up to the camera here. <laughs> the recent book is uh, it's called Fixing the Sky, The Checkered History of Weather and Climate Control. And this was uh, Columbia University Press. Uh, it's available widely. There's a paperback edition that was done in uh, 2015. And if people want to uh, get in t- contact with you, do you have a website or Twitter or something like that? Or are you? I am at Captain Weather, one word. Okay. And I'm also on the web at Colby through the uh, profile of um, faculty, some URL that you can find through the university from All right. the college. So thanks so much for talking with me and uh, thanks for listening.